You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. That's the universal sign there that it's time. Funny thing about this morning, there's just like a, a gaping hole right here. It's really funny. You all came in this way. It's just funny to me right now, not to any of you because you can't see it. I'm Fred, if I don't know you. I've been a pastor here for a little while, and uh, kind of a fun fact about me, some of you guys don't know this, um, I was on sabbatical for the last six months, so I haven't been here that much in the last year, and this is sort of my first time coming back and speaking to you guys, and so I just wanted to take a minute up front here and say thank you. Um, a lot of people helped make that possible. It was a real gift from just this church to myself, to this family, to be able to have this, this season where I could just focus on my walk with God and what, where he's calling me and what's that, what that's looking like without kind of the day in and day out of, of ministry to take place, right? And so thank you guys for that. I could, I'm sure I could give you a full update and take the whole morning, but I, uh, I want to get into the series we're in, okay? And so I'm going to jump in. If you haven't been here, we have been in a series on the Gospel of John. This is week three, the seven-part series, and, and there's a lot of ways we could do the Gospel of John and walk through it, but there's this um, kind of neat thing about the Gospel of John. There's seven distinct I am statements where Jesus says, I am, for example, the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. Those are the last two weeks, and this weekend we're jumping into a third. Because this, this theme that runs throughout is it's a big deal in the Gospel of John, kind of peeling back, revealing Jesus' identity. And at the very end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, he just kind of this unique feature of the book. He just tells us explicitly why he, he wrote this. And he says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. It's about sorting out this big question of who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? And it doesn't feel like it right now, probably. But what we believe in this church, what I believe is that it is the biggest question that anyone will wrestle with in this lifetime. It will shape your life and your character more than anything else. Is to kind of get squared up on, on who is Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're starting the school year right here. And I love the way that we introduced this series, acknowledging that, that in our day and age and in Jesus' day and age, there was a lot of mixed messages about who God is and what Jesus was like. And it came from all over his world, all over the religious world of his day. There's a lot of people that made uh, God look really unappealing, made religion look pretty hypocritical. And so Jesus, he steps right into that kind of environment. And I think we have this portrait of Jesus, kind of mild-mannered, good teacher, right? Likes children and, and sheep metaphors, this kind of thing. But we miss this part that is a feature in every single gospel account where Jesus is a prophetic voice. He is a prophetic voice, and it's absolutely disrupting to his world. And people want to kill him, and it's tense, and it's confrontational. And so I was reading and preparing and thinking about about this week, about this passage that we're going to get into. And it just struck me really early on, like, oh, this this is a big deal for the moment that the church in in America is at right now. And this stuff is on people's minds. So it's been a heavy week thinking about it. I'm sure you guys have seen it. I would imagine that in the news you've come across the fact that the reputation of the church in the last year has been terrible. 
And this is not trying to like soften that. This is about saying that no, it's been it's been maddening. Right? It's 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 people are feeling confused, angry, all kinds of emotions about about things that you've heard about leadership in the church, and, and, and we need to talk about it. We need to call those feelings what they are and bring them out and sort them out, right? Because it's okay to be angry when you hear that 300 Catholic priests or more have abused sexually, physically, over 1,000 victims in the state of Pennsylvania alone, 1,000 confirmed victims, right? And, and then you hear the full story, and those with the power to act, to hold them accountable, they didn't step into it. They didn't kind of investigate and take care of things. No, they covered it up for decades. And you learn, okay, okay, am I supposed to have institutional trust issues? I know that's maybe not healthy, but, but how can we not when you learn that Willow Creek Community Church, right? It's up in the suburbs where I grew up. It's one of the largest, most influential evangelical churches in America for a long, long time. And it comes out that they covered up and didn't listen to the, the testimonies of, of abuse victims when those came against their lead pastor, Bill Heibel. And people are kind of left to sort it out on their own. But those who have asked the hard questions started to see just how deep the cover-ups and the lack of accountability went. And people are feeling it in their gut. And, and lest you think that this is about like, oh, let's, you know, let's name these other institutions and throw them under the bus. Oh, that was really terrible, right? But, but not us. No, it's, it's about Jesus. What do you want to say to the church, to us, in this moment, right? The church in general is having kind of this come-to-Jesus moment about what do we want to be about? Who are we really? Right? And, and here, even this may, or be, may not be news to you, a lot of the staff over the last couple of years, there's been some confusion. There's been a, we're involved in a broader nationwide network, okay, of, of, of college churches and stuff. And there are actually two pastors in our movement that were removed from pastoring their churches because of abuses of, of sexual misconduct, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse came against them. And they had to be removed. And the details of that, they're, they're still being sorted out to this day. How was that handled? And the victims in these cases, they're still picking up their lives still figuring out things as, as these, these things have been brought against them and their lives have been devastated. No one is, is immune from these things. Right? And, and the sad thing about all this is I could keep going. I mean, we could keep going for a while here. And you know that. You know that there's more stories. But what we're going to kind of tease out is just that, that gut feeling that we have as we read this stuff of like, what do, I, what do I do with that? Because that gut feeling, it points to the real question that we want to ask this morning as we look into the scriptures. And it's just, who can you trust? Who do you trust? When, when this is even how like the religious world works, right? Who do you trust in this day and age when you go to any town? Any town that you may wind up in someday will probably have like two dozen churches in it. And how do you sort out, who can I trust? When most of us, we don't really trust ourselves that much to make good decisions about our lives, right? But now I'm supposed to kind of figure it out about these people, these institutions. How do you keep from just becoming cynical and jaded about religion, about church in this day and age? And it's something that I'd imagine at some point as you've read this stuff, you've taken to God. Maybe you have answers, maybe you don't. But that's where we're going to go this morning, that is the thing that we're after. And you guys are pretty smart. 
Okay, I'm saying, who can you trust? And, and I could be real dramatic and kind of string this out to the end and be like, surprise, it's Jesus, right? You, you know I'm going to say that, right? We're in the I am statements of Jesus. And so, yes, that's my answer. And it's not a pithy answer. Right? You and I, we both know that there's a lot of hard work to do still. To sort out, hey, what represents Jesus Christ? What represents the heart of God in this day and age from all the noise and from all the options that are out there? Right? That's what we got to get at. And so we're going to jump into John chapter 10 this morning, and it's a kind of a chapter-long, just brilliant, multi-layered kind of allegorical teaching of Jesus. And we're actually going to cover it in two weeks, okay, the whole chapter. Uh, there's two I am statements that happen really close to one another in this chapter. And Russ, my friend Russ, he's going to pick it up next week and explore this metaphor of the good shepherd a little deeper, much deeper, actually. But for today, I want to kind of give you a, a pretty simple outline. Uh, in chapter 10, the first six verses, he introduces this image, this, this metaphor of the sheep and the sheep pen. And that, that metaphor, is, it's the, the context of it is really important for us to be able to see, okay, how does Jesus sort out who's trustworthy in his day and age? How does he interact with those questions? And in the second half, he actually changes the metaphor a little bit, and he points to himself and he says, I am the gate. I am the gate. And so what we want to explore there is when, when the rubber meets the road, what does it actually look like to trust in Jesus when, when all our tendency and we're so prone to distrust? Okay, so that's sort of where we're going this morning. You keep it all in mind. And I'm just going to dive right into the first six verses here of chapter 10. It says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, keep them in mind. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand that he was teaching them, that he was telling them. So that first question, how does Jesus sort out in his day and age who's trustworthy? And at face value, he's telling them a story about sheep. Okay? But we're going to go a lot deeper that, than that this morning, and I promise you, you're going to learn a lot about this metaphor. Okay? And so uh, I don't, there's, I've done a lot of reading about Palestinian shepherding this week. This is a deep well, but I just, it's not that complicated, okay? Like, uh, I think, you know, you and I, we may not be an ag major, but I think we could sort up which one of these shepherds is up to no good, okay? I want to put this image of just the, the, the sheepfold, this, this enclosure in your mind, because I don't want you to think factory farming in a big Midwestern kind of tranquil landscape. That's not what you should have in mind here. This is, this is about shepherds who spend all their time with like 20 to 80 sheep. And they develop this, this sort of intimate relationship with them. And, it's, and they're not driving around on ATVs with sheepdogs and whips kind of driving the flock along. No, it's, it's very different. It's very tender. They, they develop these individual calls to the sheep, and they, they, they walk ahead of them, and the sheep follow behind. 
what to keep in mind is, is when we're talking about the, the wilderness, the landscape that they live in, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place for their sheep flock. Okay, water's scarce, hard to find food. Right, and they use these enclosures at night and, and to keep them safe from predators in the area. Okay, and so that's, that's what's going on here. That's the basic picture. But like I said, we need to go a lot, lot deeper into this metaphor, into this image, because what we're going to learn is that this metaphor is anything but random. It's not just a, oh, I'm going to go with agriculture for this, for this teaching. He links this whole section, John does, as he tells about Jesus' teaching, he links it to the season of Hanukkah. Okay, how do I know that? In John, in the same chapter, in verse 20, he says, Then came the festival of dedication. It was winter. Weird detail, like a chill in the air or something like that. But dedication is the Hebrew word for Hanukkah, the festival of Hanukkah. Okay, and so... That's where we're at in this story, and it's important because we need to do a little 60-second crash course in Hanukkah here, okay? And so we're going to do it best I can. I read some scholars this week about it. Here's sort of where it comes from is, is if you want to understand the world that Jesus stepped into, like, you have to realize that the Hebrew people, they are not strangers to being, like, dominated by world empires, okay? And the, the relevant empire in this case is the Greek empire, okay? It started, like, 320 B.C., roughly, Alexander the Great, makes his way east, kind of takes over a bunch of territory, and starts to spread Greek culture and philosophy. Call it Hellenism, okay? Take, you can take some gen eds. You'll hear that term, Hellenism. And what's happening in the Hebrews is they're becoming less and less Hebrew and more and more Greek in their thinking and in their language and this stuff. And, and what the Greek soldiers did to accomplish this is they desecrate their temple with pig's blood. They outlaw the practice of circumcision. They burn their scrolls. And they go as far as setting up like a, a pagan idol in like the most sacred place in Jewish identity in their temple. It's bad. But what happens in addition to that is that the priesthood of, of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, they become so corrupt that, that rather than kind of resisting this and shepherding the people, they capitulate with their kind of Greek overlords. And they carve out this, this comfortable place for themselves in that society. Right, where their jobs are secure. But, but right under their nose, like Jewish worship is, is just unwinding to this almost unrecognizable state. And so Hanukkah, in a nutshell, is this celebration of a time in like 165 B.C. Okay? There's this little band of resistance fighters, and they're led by this guy, Judah Maccabee, and his family. And, and they lead this revolt, and they, they take back the temple right, from, from the rulers, and, and they cleanse it. And they rededicate it to the worship of Yahweh. And, and the eight days part of it, it comes from this rededication time. They had this little supply of oil that shouldn't have lasted more than a night or two, but the miracle that happened was it, it burned for eight whole nights. And so it's this eight-day celebration, this festival. And so like a parallel story for us, when, we, when Christmas rolls around, we do all kinds of stuff to kind of get our head into it, right? We sing Silent Night. We read the Nativity story. We generally reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a holiday time. And for them, for the world Jesus is stepping into right here in John, like they, they had those things too, right? Readings and songs. But it's, it's a little different. Like they're celebrating the rededication of the temple, absolutely. But it is also a time in their, their world when they're asking the hard questions about their leadership. 
how did the shepherds go astray for so long? What happened? Who can you trust? And part of, of their liturgy, of the readings that they would do in the synagogue that week, comes from a very famous passage in the Old Testament. It's from Ezekiel 34. And it's about shepherding and sheep. And so I'm going to read you a little bit of it, just give you a little flavor for this. And I think you'll hear some echoes in what Jesus had to say. This is from Ezekiel 34. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, for they were scattered. Skipping ahead a little bit. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable to my flock. I'm against the shepherds. I'll hold them accountable to my flock. It is heavy, hitting. We got to go even further than that. Okay, here's what I want you to see. John chapter 10, sheep metaphor, shepherd metaphor, not random. When we look at the way John tells the story of what Jesus was stepping into. We look at chapter before, into John chapter 9. And it's the story of a blind man. It's this whole chapter, the story of a blind man who Jesus has compassion on. He's blind from birth. And Jesus heals his sight. And, and then Jesus kind of steps back and he goes away for a bit. But then the Pharisees, the same group, they come along and they start to interrogate this guy. They look into this healing. Hey, what happened here, right? And it says in John that they started to harass him. And they started to discredit his testimony so that people that were hearing about it, they wouldn't go run after Jesus. Because if Jesus' influence is increasing, then these Pharisees, well, they're out of a job, right? Their influence decreases. Well, what I want you to see here is, does this all sound familiar? The priesthood. In Ezekiel 34, what was, their, what was their tragic error? What was their thing that God is opposed to? It's that they didn't bind up the injured. They didn't strengthen the weak. They didn't heal the sick. The Pharisees in John chapter 9, immediately before Jesus speaks about this, they didn't bind up the injured. They didn't heal the sick. Today, is this not the exact kind of behavior that is driving people crazy about the church, and about church leadership. Isn't this kind of ground zero, right? That, that leaders' reputations are protected, but the victims are left to kind of heal their own wounds. You see, protection of the powerful and the influential, it's not a new problem. 
And what I want you to hear this morning is that it's never been okay with God. It has never been God's heart. And I found a lot of comfort this week in like, man, Jesus isn't okay with this. And he steps into it. And it's tense. Okay, and so here, here, I made a slide of just, here's how I see it. Here's how Jesus sorts out. Who's trustworthy in his day? Okay, first, the first thing we can notice is like, look, he, he, he knows the heart of God in the Scriptures. He knows the heart of God, and so he's not fooled by appearances. He's not fooled by reputations or all the good things that these people are doing. Right? And he speaks truth to power. He speaks truth to power that reveals their misdeeds, both personally, but also the kind of systems that they've bought into that are causing all this. Right? And he holds all of it, all of them and all the stuff, up to the light of God's heart, up to the light of the Gospels. And he says, you are robbing people. He calls it what it is. He says it's not okay. Right? You are thieves and robbers. This is not God's heart. And he says that, that shepherds, your role, the role has always been to bind up the injured and heal the sick. And model to this world God's heart that runs counter all the narratives of it's okay because we're doing a lot of good. Right? We're real successful. We're real influential. You know, when I look at this list, I know a lot of Christian leaders have thought about what's going on in our day and age, and I say, I've got a long way to go. Just full disclosure, I, I am not one to rock the boat all the time. I've been kind of one for like, yeah, we got, you know, we got a mission to do, and I just haven't had my head around how serious this is all over the place. And I've learned a lot. And I think a lot of Christian leaders that are looking under the hood, we see a lot of places where we've got to do better. And I think what it comes down to is we're in debt. We are in debt to the brave souls that have come forward and peeled back the facade about how things are going in the church and in the workplace and in marriages and in relationships. So I want to take you back to John for just a minute here. Do you see it with some fresh eyes now? When we jump into these first verses and, and Jesus speaks to these Pharisees again, because to, to people who are false shepherds, he doesn't mince words. He says very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep and all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Thieves and robbers, you, you, you're the robbers, guys. That's what he tells them, Right? You've stolen from people just like any oppressive ruler who has been, like, lived in the name of God and done harm to the sheep. That's you. And so what I'll say to you all this morning is that if you or someone you care about has ever been hurt by a shepherd, and that could be a lot of things, right? It could be a spiritual leader. It could be a parent. It could be an authority figure in our culture, a teacher, a police officer, a boss. And that could be anything. It's physical, spiritual, emotional, right? Someone's stolen from you something in that way. That we don't need to pretty it up. In the church, we don't need to pretty it up and make it a little bit more palatable for everybody so everyone looks okay. No, let's call it what it is. It's sin. Can we call it what it is and bring it out in the light 
Because nothing in the Bible gets healed in darkness. That's never Jesus' way. It's always in the light so that people can grieve and feel like they're not crazy. And, you know, whether or not the courts of the land do what ought to be done, I think we take comfort in the fact that God says he's just. If there's anything we believe about God, it's that he's just. And he's not confused. He's not fooled. And he says he holds people accountability. In, in the accountability, sorry. He's character. I think all of us, like things are, are pretty good sometimes in college. Like it's a fun place to be. But we, we get deceived into thinking that this world is not a spiritual and emotional kind of war zone. It is. People all over this camp, people sitting next to you, it, it is painful. It's a painful place to live and trust people. And what happens is that whether we want to admit it or not, I like to think I'm a pretty tough person anyway, like independent, but, but we look for shelter and all kinds of stuff. Right? We will run to, to leaders that look like they have their act together. We will run away from our broken families and say, oh, that wasn't working. And so we'll run to friend groups or, or a, a romantic partner right, that we put way too much stock in. And they cannot live up to that. We'll run away from religious institutions, absolutely, and say, oh, that's all messed up. And we'll run to the more comforting thought of like, hey, you know, that, like religion doesn't have, so maybe I think just everyone just finds their way to God eventually. And it's a, it's a nicer thought. It's a comforting thought. But Jesus says something very different. He says, no, there's, there's a lot of people that speak on behalf of God, and it sounds all right, but it is not all the same. And it does a lot of harm to people. Right? When people tell them wrong things and we go along with it. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows how the world works, and he understands that, that when in a world where we can't trust things, we, we kind of scrape together some friends that we feel all right with. We scrape together some ideas that are more comfortable. We scrape together accomplishments, a little bit of money to kind of keep us a little bit buffered, to keep our world a little bit more safe from the things that can get to us. Where I want to take us for the rest of this is in the next few verses where I think Jesus, he speaks right to our distrust, right? And he speaks right to our, our self-protection. And I'm just going to walk through this image with you for the, for the rest of our time. He says it here in, chapter, in verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who've come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Hear that? The sheep have not listened to them. That's a great little detail because that is what we hope for you. That's a lot of the answer right there. Is that as, as Christ followers, we learn to filter out the noise of what represents God's heart and what doesn't. Right? Our hope for you is that you will grow to maturity in Christ. Not just kind of dabble on Sundays, but get to know the voice of the shepherd so that you don't have to rest, live the rest of your life just kind of like distrusting and cynical of people, suspicious of everyone you meet. That's not God's heart for you. So here's where it lands. This is the third I am statement 
of Jesus. He says, I am the gate. I am the gate for the sheep. There's a ton of letdowns out there. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the one person through whom people must go in order to thrive. Sheep are not meant to fend for themselves. And in case this is like missing you, uh, you and I were the sheep. Okay, I, uh, that's important. But I think that that depending on who you are, that kind of rubs that, that that strikes a chord with you. Like it doesn't sit well, right? Like I I don't want to need anybody. I don't want I don't want to belong to anyone's sheepfold. Right? I'm not a simple weak sheep. I'm a free thinking, fight my own battles kind of sheep. Right? We got a lot of like things going on inside. Like. I don't, I, I'm an I'm a open-minded sheep. I think we've got a lot of ways of kind of pushing back against that, that shepherding of Jesus. And, and I think Jesus, he, he sees it all. And I think that if he could speak into that, he would say, like, yeah, yeah you, are, you are kind of tough out there right there in the wilderness. Like, it's, it's rough. You probably had to be kind of tough at times, tough-minded. And he says, but... Sheep aren't meant to fend for themselves. You're not meant to fend for yourselves. That's not how it's supposed to be. And I want to offer you something different, something better. Keeps going. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it. You see, this image of the gate and the sheep pen, it is not just about like becoming this insular person that's, that's afraid of everything and just kind of coming into Jesus' safety. No, it's, a, it's an image of coming and going. It's about finding life, right? About finding life and purpose under a shepherd, under God's protection and his leadership because he knows us and he leads us out, right? The sheep are coming and going into pasture, into what they're made to do. And for those of us that, that always push back, you're like, I, I think we need to hear that Jesus, he's not naive. He's not naive about, like, oh, there's, there's, it's tough out there. It's not like coming into the sheep pen is like, oh, I'm going to have a trouble-free life now. Right? Thanks, Jesus. And we know that that doesn't work that way. No, Jesus is very forthright in chapter 16. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Overcome the world. See, it's not this trouble-free life that we get in Jesus when we're in the gate. What we get is a life where, where trouble makes sense. Right? We get a life where trouble and suffering makes sense. And by faith, we believe that it doesn't get the last word. That's what's different. I think, I think, uh, I think Jesus... We have this portrait of him that, that, I don't know, maybe he doesn't know how hard it is. I think he does. I think he knows, yeah, this, this world is brutal. And we have our own set of problems that are very different than, than the world at large. But maybe here our problems are like, gosh, it is brutal to find a job in your field. It's a really big struggle for a lot of us. Right? It's, it's really tough. It's a tough grind to find, like, friends that, that you can really trust and, and be vulnerable with. It's, it's tough to figure out, what do I actually believe? <laughs> what do I actually believe? 
but he says that it is about life to the full. It's about life to the full, and we all want that, right? And I think we all find little ways to kind of figure out the good life for ourselves. We try little things. This is a little bit better. You know, I'm going to be a really healthy sheep. That's going to be better for me this year. I'm going to become a kale-drinking kind of mindfulness sheep. We do the accomplishments thing, right? I'm going to be, I'm not only going to be stylish, I'm going to be well-accomplished. I'm going to get my 3.8. I'm going to be fine. I'm a really smart sheep. I'm going to make it. And I think Jesus, like, if he could speak into it, he'd say, like, yeah, that stuff's good. It's good stuff. I like kale. I made it. I'm glad people are eating it now. But how's it going? Is that it? Is that it? And then he points to himself. And he says, I am the gate to the city. I want to offer you something better. And so I kind of put a pin in it right here. And if you could remember it, maybe in one way, think of it this way. It's then in a world full of letdowns, Jesus is the gate for the wounded and the wandering. And there's no one else. There's no one else that you ought to trust with your heart, your soul, your future, your life. Jesus is the gate for the wounded and the wandering, for every one of us. And I am shocked that I have time to tell you a little story here. And so I'm going to have the band come down, and we're going to wrap this up here. And I'm going to do this probably faster than I should. But I want to tell you one story, because the things that we run after in this life, most of us, it's not like really obviously bad stuff, like, oh, I'm running away from Jesus, so I'm going to run to something that's going to hurt me. No, we run toward pretty good stuff. We put our hope in pretty good stuff. And so there's a student here. She graduated a couple years ago, super smart and, and super gracious with her time. Like, she volunteered and led, like, two mission trips for us when she was a student. And this is the context they got to know her in. You would have loved this person. Like, it was just, just sunshine. It's kind of how I, I think about it, you know, and, but, but she gets to her senior year, and she hits this stretch that many of you have hit or will hit, and it's about just her job search, and it's not going well, right, and, and she's kind of describing it, and all the, like, big questions are coming in, not just am I going to get an offer or something like that, but, like, am I any good at anything anymore? Is God going to provide for me? Like, can I pay my debts? Am I going to be broke and homeless? Like, all the joy just sucked out of her face, you know, for, like, months, and, 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 and that is where a lot of you get, and I've been there, I've had that sort of like season of life, I'm not there now, but, but it's hard, it's, it's a hard season. But it came to an end, and it was, I'm glad it came to an end for her. She got an offer in the spring, it, it came through, and she gives me a little life update about it, and, and it turns out it's not just anything, it's like a great offer, it's for this pharmaceutical company that's got all kinds of patents. They're, they're growing super fast. It's Abby. okay? I'll just tell you the, the name. It's, I don't own stock in it or anything. And we're like, just like high five and like, yes, Abby, this is awesome. <laughs> You're going to be all right, right? Like, like my, this sheep, she was lost and wandering, but Abby came along and took her into its fold. And this is so good, right? Our friend's going to be all right. We lose touch, okay? She moves up to the burbs. That's what happens around here. She starts working. We're working. Everyone's working. A year and a half goes by. We run into her at a wedding this summer, my wife and I. And I'm like, this is great. I want to catch up. How's it going? How's the job? How's and her face, it perks down. I don't know how to say it. I don't know what the opposite of perks up is. It perks down. 
And she is like, it, is, it was not what I thought it was. Everyone there was miserable. I mean, including the, the managers and the bosses. Like, miserable. Bad. Like, the hours were insane. The work culture was awful. There was so much turnover in the, even just the short time when I was there. When I finally told my boss after six months that, that I was quitting, that I was moving on, he said, good for you. Good. I'm so glad you don't have to stay here. And I'm like, <laughs> what? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that's where it went. And so for you guys, you know, if you're wondering, she, she's doing fine. She got introduced to a smaller pharmaceutical company by some friends from church, and, and she made that transition. She's doing well uh, vocationally. She's, you know, she's still figuring out life. It's going fine. But for me, I just, it just held up this micro, microscope to me of like, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm like, shepherd of her life, and I put so much stock in this, in this job, in this career narrative for her. And I don't want to get fooled like that again. And I want you guys to become wise to that, and I want to become wise to that as well. Right? And so I'll just say it over your life again. There's no other foundation, right? It is a world full of letdowns, and Jesus is the gate. He's the only gate for the wounded and for the wandering. Let's Pray, Jesus.